Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, September 20th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's headlines. The annual UN General Assembly begins. Hunter Biden sues the IRS. Azerbaijan announces a military operation in a contested region. Evidence suggests Ukraine is responsible for a deadly Donetsk strike. UN experts warn of crimes against humanity in Ethiopia. Italy passes stricter migration measures. Virginia Representative Jennifer Wexton says she won't seek re-election. A missing F-35 jet is located in South Carolina. Australia announces the arrival of El Nino. And Elon Musk floats the idea of a fee for X. In our first story, the UN General Assembly begins. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, the Associated Press, USA Today, ABC News, and the New York Times. The UN's annual General Assembly opened Monday with Secretary General Antonio Guterres highlighting that the world is facing its highest number of violent conflicts since 1945 as well as high food prices, record temperatures, climate disasters, and unprecedented numbers of migrants and asylum seekers. With the debates beginning Tuesday, global leaders from over 140 countries gathered in New York. Among them is U.S. President Joe Biden, the only leader of the five permanent members of the Security Council, comprised of the U.S., Russia, China, France, and Britain, to attend in person. Speaking Tuesday, Biden touched on maintaining support for Ukraine, denuclearizing both the Korean Peninsula and Iran, and working with China. He also called for combating climate change, particularly in Latin America, Africa, and Southeast Asia. Analysts and diplomats say the meeting takes place at perhaps the most fraught moment since the Cold War, especially given that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov will be in the same room. As world leaders opt not to come to the high-level meeting, some analysts have expressed concern that the UN could become increasingly sidelined on the global stage. On this podcast, we separate the spin from the facts. Melissa just laid out all those facts for us. And now our first spin is the pro-establishment narrative from the Christian Science Monitor. This year's General Assembly and Biden's speech in particular is a defining moment for the U.S. and the U.N. The world is becoming increasingly multipolar and the U.S. must show that it is still a leader in global affairs able to counter Russian moves in Ukraine and meet the challenge from the global south, which is increasingly turning to China. As Biden is the only Security Council representative to attend this year, it's paramount that he show the world that the West is still on top. And an establishment critical narrative comes from the journal. The UN's sole job is to help fix the world's problems, but it has failed in each of the most important factors. War, famine, and migration issues have only become more prevalent, while U.S. President Joe Biden makes weak calls for de-escalation in Ukraine. Why has the international body pegged with bringing about progress only allowed for more hardship and destruction? It's time for a candid review of how the UN operates and the part that more neutral countries with fewer conflicts of interest are allowed to play. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there is a 1% chance that Russia will be removed from the UN Security Council by the year 2024. 
Melissa, through a series of fortunate events, I once stayed in the presidential suite at the hotel at the UN. What? Yeah. yeah. That's cool. And, uh, there's a presidential suite at the Holiday Inn in Parsippany or whatever. But like this is actually a presidential suite that a president would stay in because it's at the UN. Yeah. How did you get there? There was there was one big problem with the room, and you're not going to guess what it is. I don't. What's think. that? The bed was terrible, like worse than oh. a regular hotel room. And if you've ever stayed at a hotel in New York City, the rooms, hotel rooms, even nice ones, are small. This was not small. This was a multi-room whole deal. And mm. then the the bedroom, the bed was like in the middle of the room, semi Austin Powers style, like it was really nice. <laughs> but the mattress was the worst. And I remember uh. I asked. Like, what's going on? Like, they had told us, like, uh, several celebrities that had stayed in this room. You know, it was a real presidential suite. And, you know, uh, various world leaders said, this bed stinks. Like, it's 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 so uncomfortable. And he's and the person who was in charge said, well, these kind of people usually bring their own mattresses. What? If Beyonce's <laughs> staying in a hotel, she's not staying in whatever mattress you have, no matter okay, how nice it is. Okay, she's going to make sure she's she gets a good night's sleep. She's her own deal. So yeah, the, the mattress they had in herself. If you're staying in this room and you're not me, you are bringing your own mattress of some sort. You have some sort of arrangement. So That's interesting. I was going to guess that not it never, it so rarely got used that the mattress was from the 60s or something. I mean, it was an old mattress. I mean, it was, it was just, it was just a placeholder mattress. Like it was, I guess that it would was, still be true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah it's it'd be kind of funny if there was just like, if they kept it for like how many world leaders had an affair on this mattress. Like we're just keeping oh, it for posterity. Yeah. <laughs> Hunter Biden sues the IRS over a privacy violation. Here are the facts. As agreed upon by NPR Online News, CNN, CBS News, and The Guardian. On Monday, Hunter Biden, son of U.S. President Joe Biden, sued the IRS, alleging that the agency illegally released his confidential tax return information to the media. The lawsuit, which was filed in federal court in Washington, D.C., does not name Gary Shapley and Joseph Ziegler, the former agents who turned whistleblower, as defendants. But it's focused on comments they made on television after testifying before Congress. Hunter Biden alleges that he is the victim of an effort by Shapley, Ziegler, and their legal teams to embarrass him by disclosing confidential information about a private citizen's tax matters. Hunter Biden, who is facing criminal charges related to non-payment of taxes and illegally purchasing a gun as a result of the federal investigation in question, is seeking $1,000 in damages for each unauthorized disclosure of his tax information as well as costs and attorney fees. The IRS declined to comment about the suit, but lawyers for Shapley called it frivolous in a statement. In the spring, Shapley and Ziegler brought concerns about favoritism and the alleged slow pace of the years-long investigation of the president's son to the House Ways and Means Committee and subsequently granted media interviews on the issue. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. And we have two opposing narratives here, starting with a Democratic narrative from The Washington Post. Hunter Biden is fighting back against those accusing him of crimes while attempting to tie his father to fabricated wrongdoings. Although he's a public figure, Hunter Biden still has a right to privacy that neither whistleblowers from the IRS nor Congress have a right to violate, especially if they're going to spread misinformation about him for political gains. And the Republican spin comes from Red State. 
This lawsuit is a brazen attack on IRS whistleblowers who have come forward to show how political interference has obstructed the Hunter Biden investigation. The president's son continues to act as though he's above the law rather than being accountable for his actions. And we have another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 50 percent chance that President Joe Biden will have a net approval rating of at least 11.1 by November 2024. Azerbaijan launches a military operation in Nagorno-Karabakh. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNBC, NPR Online News, Al Jazeera, Politico and The Guardian. Azerbaijan launched a military operation on Tuesday against the contested Nagorno-Karabakh region, which is under ethnic Armenian control, threatening to carry on until the end. Gunfire and artillery barrages erupted across the contact line that divides local forests from the Azerbaijani army. Azerbaijan claimed that referred to the operation as anti-terrorist activities in Nagorno-Karabakh to restore constitutional order and dislodge what it called Armenian military formations there, increasing fears of a new conflict over the highly contested region. Azerbaijan also said it was using precision weapons in carrying out airstrikes. Local representatives in the region claimed that mass shelling had begun. Russia, which has troops on the ground in Nagorno-Karabakh as part of the agreement that ended the most recent war in the region in 2020, called for both sides to return to a ceasefire and a diplomatic solution to the conflict. Armenia urged Russian forces deployed in the area to intervene and prevent the Azerbaijani offensive, saying that Azerbaijan was engaged in a full-scale aggression against the local Armenian population. Turkey, which supports Azerbaijan both militarily and diplomatically, claimed that Azerbaijan was forced to act, saying that Nagorno-Karabakh is sovereign Azerbaijani territory. Azerbaijan claimed that it sought to evacuate the region's Armenian population from dangerous areas, raising concerns over its allegations of ethnic cleansing. The Azerbaijani Defense Ministry said it had established humanitarian corridors and reception points in order to ensure the evacuation of the population from the dangerous area. The conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan goes back to the fall of the Soviet Union, when both countries, at the time republics within the USSR, declared independence, with both claiming sovereignty over Nagorno-Karabakh, which is a majority Armenian region within Azerbaijan's official borders. In the early 1990s, Armenia managed to capture the entire area, as well as neighboring majority Azerbaijani regions that link Nagorno-Karabakh to Armenia. A second war erupted in 2020, with Azerbaijan capturing swaths of territory from Armenia and its local allied forces, with Russia playing a key role in negotiating a ceasefire that ended hostilities. Tensions increasingly rose this year after Azerbaijan enacted a partial blockade of the Lashin Corridor, the only road that links Nagorno-Karabakh with Armenia. Thanks for that rundown of this conflict, Melissa. We have a Narrative A from the Armenian Weekly. It is clear what Azerbaijan's intentions are. Ethnically cleansed Nagorno-Karabakh, known to Armenians as Artsakh. Azerbaijan, after weakening the region through months of a brutal siege, has decided that it does not need to follow international law or norms and can simply attack Artsakh's Armenian population. Artsakh's fighters will defend their land as best they can, but without outside intervention, thousands of years of Armenian history, 
heritage, and culture will be erased. Civilians were already enduring hard times due to the siege, and now they face the loss of their homeland. AZE Media brings us Narrative B. Azerbaijan did not start this war, but it will defend its land and its people. Armenian forces in Nagorno-Karabakh have continually refused to disarm and withdraw from the region, which is internationally recognized as sovereign Azerbaijani territory. The goals of this anti-terror operation are to simply dislodge Armenia's military presence in the region and ensure the return of refugees displaced by Armenia in the first war. The civilian population and civilian infrastructure have not and will not be targeted, as Azerbaijan is only interested in Armenian military targets. I only ever think of um, of Sona Movsesian from Conan O'Brien's podcast because she's Armenian. There's a big Armenian population in the in the L.A. area. I know that there's like, uh, like yeah, little Glendale. Armenia and Glendale area. Yeah, right. Oh, um, I didn't realize there was a little Armenia, too. I, I don't know if it's officially that, but like people say that. I've heard that term before. I'm not uh, Angelino myself, but uh, yeah, maybe they just <laughs> maybe that's not an official term. But uh, yeah, I wonder so, I if it started in the 90s when there was this kind of. Yeah, you know, get, well, the getting's good. Yeah, exactly. Evidence suggests Ukraine is responsible for the deadly Donetsk strike. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Times, Al Arabia, and the Associated Press. A New York Times investigation published on Monday concluded that the evidence strongly suggests that Ukraine was responsible for a September 6th attack on Kostyantinivka in Donetsk that killed at least 15 civilians, one of the deadliest attacks of this year. At the time of the strike, which hit a market and other businesses in the predominantly Russian-speaking region, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky blamed Russian terrorists for the attack. Most media also blamed the Kremlin without pointing to evidence for the allegation. However, almost two weeks after the strike, the New York Times reported that the missile flew toward Kostyantinivka from a northwesterly direction in Ukrainian-held territory. This was verified by analyzing the crater as well as video footage of the strike, which showed people turning towards the sound and the traveling missile being reflected by the surfaces of two cars. Meanwhile, weapons experts spoken to by the publication said that fragments left behind by the missile were most consistent with a 9M38 missile fired by the mobile book anti-aircraft vehicle that's used by both Russia and Ukraine. Witnesses said that they saw two missiles being fired from Drushkivka in Ukrainian-held territory at roughly the same time as the hit in Kostyantinivka. The Times reported that it was unclear why Kostyantinivka was struck, but speculated that the attack appears to have been a tragic mishap. It said that a missile may have veered off its intended course due to a variety of reasons, including an electronic malfunction or a fin that was damaged upon release. The attack took place the same day that U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Kyiv. He later announced a $1 billion aid package for Ukraine. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins, beginning with a pro-Ukraine narrative from Ukranska Pravda. Russia was responsible for this heinous attack on Kostyantinivka that killed at least a dozen civilians and injured scores more. It's a further demonstration of Russia's use of terrorism against Ukraine. And the New York Times counters with the establishment critical narrative. An analysis of the evidence suggests that Ukraine was in fact responsible for the missile that struck Kostyantinivka. This was likely the result of an errant missile which veered off direction. 
And we have a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 1% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory, Luhansk, Donetsk, or Crimea, as independent before 2024. Crimes against humanity continue in Ethiopia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, UN News, The Associated Press, Reuters, The Guardian, and Barron's. A report published by the UN on Monday has claimed that war crimes and crimes against humanity continue to occur in Ethiopia, despite the state's government and regional forces in Tigray agreeing to a truce nearly a year ago. The report by the International Commission of Human Rights Experts on Ethiopia documents human rights violations by all parties involved in the conflict since November 3, 2020. The commission was established in December 2021. It was found that at least 10,000 people have been affected by rape and other sexual violence alone, with the chairman of the commission, Mohamed Chanda Othman, claiming that the truce signed last year has not resolved the conflict in the north of the country. The report describes the violations as grave and ongoing. Both the Ethiopian government, backed by Eritrean forces and Tigray's regional forces, blame each other for the atrocities in the state, such as massacres, rape, and arbitrary detentions. Approximately 5.4 million out of 6 million people in the region of Tigray rely on humanitarian aid, despite food donations being paused since March this year in light of nationwide corruption allegations centered on grain stealing. The report further warned that beyond Tigray, hostilities in Ethiopia are now at a national scale, citing the regions of Amhara as well as Oromia with implications to impact regional stability throughout East Africa. Amnesty International brings us Narrative A. Following the dangerous escalation of human rights violations in Ethiopia, the United Nations must commit to extending the mandate for the International Commission of Human Rights Experts in Ethiopia, Now is not the time to reduce pressure on a country that continues to engage in such atrocities from all sides. Suffering and instability must be stopped before it is allowed to spread even further into East Africa. Narrative B comes from the reporter Ethiopia. The tragic conflict in Ethiopia is best addressed not looking so much at international actors, but at grassroots organizing and community healing. Ethiopia is home to a plethora of diverse ethnic, cultural, and linguistic groups. It's through local organizing and community-to-community dialogue that real progress in conflict resolution can take place. Relying on the state and international organizations is not enough by itself. And Metaculus brings us this nerd narrative. They predict there's a 35% chance that Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed will experience a significant leadership disruption before the year 2025. Um, when I when I was younger, I used to work on a cruise ship, like a local tourism cruise ship. You know, so we'd give tours, but also our boats would be rented out for parties. And Mm. there was a group of Ethiopians who lived in the city now uh, in the U.S. who would yearly do this uh, party um, where they would just dance all night. I mean, the whole like whatever, four or five hours they had the boat rented and we'd go out onto the sound and then just and they would do this one uh, dance that. Uh, everyone was kind of in a ring or in a circle and you just like drop your shoulders and shimmy and uh, and you can't help after four or five hours like doing the dance when you're standing behind the bar of the boat. Right. 
it was really fun. <laughs> I was like, I, I was always wanted to book that cruise. I was like, oh, I want that one. I want that one. We're going to yeah. dance all night. That yeah. and uh, Black Label. That's what they wanted. Black Label. What's black? Like, the black label of like Johnny uh, Johnny Black Johnny Walker? Yeah, yeah it's like okay. Uh, fill the boat black, with Black Label. Black Label. I wonder what because Black Label is. It's neither the cheapest nor the most expensive. It's like the good regular one. I wonder why. Uh, you know, red is the is the cheapest. Blue is the most expensive, and and black is like. Fifty dollars for a bottle, not okay. not twenty and not two hundred for blue. So it was uh, like we're gonna really splurge, yeah, but we're I, not gonna go crazy. Well, yeah, we're yeah. not gonna spend a hundred thousand dollars on right. on uh, on scotch here. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. Black black label. Good. All right. That sounds well. The sounds like a it heck a of great, a party. It was a all great the party. black label you want and all the shoulders you want to shimmy. That's fine. Yeah. Oh yeah, all night long. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> I would probably get seasick. On that, especially with all the oh, shimmying, yeah. I think I would. <laughs> Maybe the shimmying would balance it out. <laughs> Maybe, but the black label would rebalance it. Oh out yeah, in the wrong direction. Yeah. yeah, you'd be. You probably would not be invited back to that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons I wouldn't be invited back, <laughs> but I think that's one of them. Yeah. I mean, you're not a staple of the you know Seattle Ethiopian community either. No. So I guess there was a good Ethiopian restaurant when I lived in Capitol Hill, the Seattle Capitol Hill. There was right near right. I, I didn't go there as much as I should have, but it was like a notable Ethiopian restaurant. And what was really weird about the restaurant, everyone liked it, but there was a soda machine out front that was like the mystery soda machine. Are you familiar with this thing? Was the, this the, like the, right, like like Broadway and right off Broadway, like Olive, right, just yeah, north, or yeah, John. Exact, right yeah. near the yes, a hundred percent. It's a house. It was like a house. It, yes, and then there was like this soda machine that I don't. To me, it was fully a mystery, and the soda machine just had, like, mysterious sodas in it, and, like, no one knew who <laughs> refilled it. It wasn't, like, part of any kind of structure, but there were sodas inside, but all the choices were just question mark. Um, it's just a mystery. That sounds like old Seattle, just, like, yeah. weird mystery things, like, here's a vending machine that nobody knows who it operates in. But it also, but it works. Like, if you want a drink, there's right. soda in there. So, and it's a mystery. And someone yeah. is just getting a big rise out of this. It's, yeah. It's kind and of awesome. <laughs> I kind of love stuff like that. And that oh, yeah. That's, um, I think that stuff is probably rarer in Seattle than it was 10 years ago. Much and, less, and, and, yeah. And I'm sure someone 10 years ago would have said it was rarer than it was 10 years before that. Oh, yeah. Uh, but um, Well, they would be the coolest one then. They would, yeah. Yeah. Then, then some 10 year probably there's always someone from further back and right then they would until, be the coolest until they die i guess so that's, yeah <laughs> anyway <laughs> i think we've just honored ethiopia by talking about the mystery soda machine italy passes tougher measures to deter migrant arrivals here are the facts as agreed upon by financial times dw politico voice of america reuters and al jazeera on Monday, the Italian government passed stricter measures to crack down on immigration after about 10,000 migrants reached the southern Italian island of Lampedusa last week. The detention period for migrants awaiting an asylum decision has been raised from three to six months, with a possible extension of up to 18 months. The government also approved setting up more detention centers in remote areas. Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney claims the move provides Rome with the time needed not just to do the necessary checks, but also to proceed with the repatriation for those without the right to international protection. This comes a day after visiting European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen offered a 10-point action plan to help Italy deal with the migrant crisis, saying 
Irregular migration is a European challenge and it needs a European answer. The action plan includes sending the European Union Asylum Agency and the European Border and Coast Guard to Italy to manage new arrivals. So far this year, more than 128,000 migrants have arrived in Italy, about twice as many as in the same period in 2022. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins, starting with a pro-establishment narrative from Le Monde. Before her election win, far-right Maloney had announced plans to close Italy's borders and echoed anti-EU rhetoric. Now she is open to a pan-European solution to stop the influx of illegal migrants. The EU urgently needs a coordinated immigration policy, as the migrant crisis is an opportunity to strengthen the EU and demonstrate joint capacity to act. This would send an important signal before the 2024 European elections to forces that have already written off the EU. And we have an establishment critical narrative from Info Migrants. The EU likes to talk about standing up for freedom and human rights. In its dealings with migrants, however, it reveals yet again that this is nothing more than empty rhetoric and pure hypocrisy. The most recent example is the Memorandum of Understanding between the EU and Autocratic Tunisia to prevent migrants from reaching Europe. One is reminded of the refugee pact with Turkey or the EU's collusion with Libyan militias to contain migrant arrivals. Neither Leyen nor Maloney seem to have a problem with that. And Euractiv brings us a narrative C. Although von der Leyen tried to signal solidarity and unity, her visit to Lampedusa highlighted the disagreement between Brussels and Rome on how to deal with the migrant crisis. While von der Leyen stressed the need for legal routes and humanitarian corridors to combat traffickers, Maloney wants to block departures while speeding up repatriations. Whether Maloney's vision of a fortress Europe materializes will be a stress test for the supposed European unity. Virginia Representative Jennifer Wexton won't seek re-election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, CNN, Fox News, ABC News, and Politico. Representative Jennifer Wexton, Democrat of Virginia, announced on Monday that she will not run for re-election in 2024, citing her declining health following a Parkinson's diagnosis in April. As her diagnosis developed from Parkinson's to progressive supranuclear palsy, or PSP, Wexton said she was heartbroken that she wouldn't be able to serve her community once her term was complete. The 54-year-old congresswoman added that she has always believed that honesty is the most important value in public service, also saying that the new diagnosis is a tough one. Acknowledging that there's no getting better with PSP, Wexton reaffirmed her efforts to combat misconceptions that Parkinson's disease only affects older people. Wexton, who won re-election in last year's midterms, was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 2018 after she defeated Representative Barbara Comstock, ending 40 years of Republican control of the district. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. National Review brings us Narrative A. This is indeed tragic news. Representative Wexton has run spirited re-election campaigns against the GOP since 2018, and both sides of the aisle wish her the very best in the battle with this horrific disease. Looking forward, her absence in 2024 will ultimately translate to a competitive race, with politicians from the Democratic and Republican parties looking to win the opportunity to serve those in Wexton's district with the same commitment and conviction the representative has shown throughout her long career. And the New York Times brings us Narrative B. 
Although the GOP and Democrats can unite in recognizing the service and dignity of individuals like Wexton, there is very little else they can agree on. The dramatic rise in partisan animosity in the U.S. in recent years has undermined American democracy, stifling dialogue and legislative progress. Wexton's service to those she represented should be recognized, though it should also be highlighted that her career is not indicative of the current festering gridlock that characterizes U.S. politics. And it's nerd narrative time again. Metaculus predicts there's a 50% chance that at least 95% of the U.S. 2024 presidential popular vote will be received by the Democratic and Republican parties combined. The missing F-35 jets wreckage is located. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The Hill, New York Times, Al Jazeera, BBC News, and USA Today. The U.S. military said on Monday evening that the debris of a missing F-35 fighter jet had been discovered in South Carolina one day after the Marine Corps mysteriously lost track of it. The discovery comes after officials at Joint Base Charleston asked the public to, quote, locate an F-35 that was involved in a mishap. The jet's pilot, who ejected safely, is reportedly receiving medical care. The $80 million Lightning II jet belonged to the Marine Fighter Attack Training Squadron 501, with the 2nd Marine Aircraft Wing based in Beaufort near the South Carolina coast. Military officials say the debris was found two hours northeast of Joint Base Charleston. However, they refused to divulge further details so as to preserve the integrity of the investigative process. While residents were asked to steer clear of the site, all Marine Corps aviation units were ordered to pause operations for two days. According to the Marine Corps, the F-35's loss was the third event documented as a, quote, Class A mishap in the last six weeks. The crash of a Marine Corps F-A-18 Hornet combat jet and a Marine Corps MV-22B Osprey both remain under investigation. Those were the facts, and here are the spins, starting with an establishment critical narrative from the Wall Street Journal. It's ridiculous that the U.S. military lost an ultra-high-tech fighter jet and were forced to turn to the public to find it, rather than use a tracking device. The fact that civilians had been tasked with locating the most advanced and lethal fighter jet in the world calls the competency of the military authorities into question. And the Washington Post brings us a pro-establishment narrative. The F-35s are designed to be difficult to detect, and their anti-radar capabilities are one of the key reasons they are enlisted in the U.S. military. While it may be frustrating that the stealthy jet couldn't be tracked, it's also testament to the efficacy of the technology as the jet proved undetectable while airborne. And the nerds are at it again from Metaculus, saying there's a 25% chance that the U.S. president's ability to deploy military force will be further restricted by 2030. We're an AirTag family, Melissa. Oh, what? wait, what's AirTag? Those little Apple round circles that you can put in your wallet or your luggage or on your keys or on your kids or wherever, and your iPhone can track it. Oh, okay. So you think they, if they could have uh, put that on there, they would have been all right? I mean, I'm not the Secretary of Defense, but I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, 35 bucks on Apple.com could have saved $80 million. So just, I'm just saying. Australia declares the formation of El Nino. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Barron's, The Guardian, The Wall Street Journal, Al Jazeera, and The New York Times. 
On Tuesday, Australia's leading meteorological organization declared that the El Nino weather pattern has developed over the Pacific Ocean and will bring dry conditions conducive to heat waves and wildfires to the already hot eastern region of the country. The Bureau of Meteorology's announcement follows a similar announcement made in June by the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, and in July by the World Meteorological Organization. An El Nino occurs when the waters near the equator in the Pacific Ocean become warmer than average, altering the atmospheric circulation and subsequently the global climate. The shift to an El Nino signals the end of the La Nina weather pattern, which had been in place for the last three years. La Nina is marked by higher-than-average rainfall, a characteristic that greatly supports Australia's agricultural community by improving soil quality and reducing wildfire risk, thus increasing crop yields. On Tuesday, temperatures in Sydney soared to 93.9 degrees Fahrenheit, nearly breaking the record of 94.3 degrees Fahrenheit set in 1965. The dry and windy conditions have contributed to 61 wildfires burning across the Australian state of New South Wales, with 13 uncontained. With a new weather pattern, Australia faces an above-average wildfire season reminiscent of the Black Summer from 2019, in which nearly 500 people lost their lives as millions of acres burned. Foreign policy brings us Narrative A. The announcement of an El Nino weather pattern is never welcomed. While the weather pattern varies in severity with each arrival, they more often than not spell disaster and ramp up global instability. The incoming El Nino is expected to be particularly bad and will likely result in the reduction of crop yields, putting both humans and livestock at risk of starvation. And here's Narrative B from The Conversation. As the El Nino weather pattern shifts into place, there will be winners and losers. Some areas of the globe can withstand and even thrive in the warm and dry conditions, while others cannot. However, before we panic and rush to prepare, let's be reminded that not all scientists agree that an El Nino will occur or that the severity will be astronomical. Current forecasts could be wildly inaccurate. And Metaculus brings us another nerd narrative. This time they predict there's a 90% chance there will be at least 2 degrees Celsius of global warming by the year 2100. I have a joke about uh, Seattle meteorologists, like the easiest job in the world, right? Because they really just put, eh, clouds, put clouds. Yeah. And uh, they can pretty much be right most of the time. (laughs) Just put clouds. You know, the sun might come out right before sunset, but, you know, you're good for like eight months. You're good. Good enough that you could just write it down and leave, and then people will be, oh, he's an 80% weatherman. That's pretty good. You know, like, that's that's yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. Decent. <laughs> I, I, if I was a weatherman, I would say, like, non-committal, like, oh, man, might want to pack your umbrella. You know, like, I wouldn't actually give the forecast. I would just give vague advice. <laughs> That'd be fun. Yeah. yeah like, that would help oh, everybody. <laughs> wear layers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, stuff like that. You know, that yeah. that's the kind of I'd be really helpful as a weatherman. Yeah. <laughs> Our final story, Musk suggests a paywall for X. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Post, Business Insider, The Independent, BBC News, and Al Jazeera. Elon Musk, owner of X, formerly Twitter floated the idea of a monthly fee for users during a talk he had Monday with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. 
Musk, who's also in charge of Tesla and SpaceX, said a fee could help to fight vast armies of bots on the platform. Previously, Musk has attempted to incentivize users to pay for X Premium, which gives subscribers more features, including longer posts and more visibility on the platform, but X is still free to use. Although he didn't say how much a potential fee would be, Musk said it would be less than the $8 per month charge for X Premium and would be a small amount of money. Musk bought X in October 2022 and has since made many changes, some of which have been part of an effort to make it profitable. In July, he said the company was in a difficult financial position. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. And we'll start with narrative A from Forbes. AI is getting smarter and it's becoming more difficult to prevent bots from overwhelming the platform and amplifying hate speech. By charging a small fee, Musk can combat the bots while at the same time he can open up a revenue stream that will make up for the dip in ad revenue. This is the right move in a challenging tech market. And narrative B comes from the Daily Mail. Charging a fee might eliminate a large swath of bots from X, but it will also scare off multitudes of users. There are too many competitors for users to turn to now. This is the wrong time for Musk to suddenly deploy a paywall. In the face of personnel cuts at X as well, this is a risky move. And the nerds have the final word today from Metaculus. This says there's a 98% chance that Musk will remain owner of Twitter on January 1st, 2024. I'm sure that Mr. Musk has thought about these things and is figuring this out. But what about like the school district that says it's a snow day on, on X now? I feel like it's become like a part of the fabric of, you know, the, the social order. Uh, well, you know, schools are usually funded by government, so they've got plenty of cash. Oh, okay. So we'll just yeah. we'll pay for it ourselves for them. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There will be a fundraiser. Oh, if you're in. Oh, man. These there, fundraisers no, be a have levy. gotten out of control. Oh, a It'll levy. It'll be a yeah. levy. Yeah. Even yeah. worse. <laughs> they These fundraisers have gotten out of control at schools. Really? The, you know, I, I feel like, you know, there was the candy bars. Now there's the. It's just a scam, right? That like that kids guilt their grandparents into buying stuff they don't want? Isn't that all it is? Yeah, kind of just asking your parents and community to pay for things. <laughs> and wouldn't it be better just to get the money from them rather than making them buy stuff and half the money goes towards stuff nobody wants? Like Probably. I don't know. There must be. There must have been some kids like in the Girl Scout troop who learned about business by selling cookies. Well, those are actually good cookies. That's that's like the That's gold true. standard. That's like I would like to buy those cookies. If they were in the store, I would probably buy them. Um, yeah. But everything else, like the off-brand candy bars, you know, like the weird, like, I don't even know. It was always like weird stuff. Like, I don't know. I just yeah. feel like there's, I feel like someone's getting rich off all these things and it's just a big scam. I don't know. I mean, I like a bad candy bar too. <laughs> I also like it, but you could buy a bad candy. I guess oh, here's the thing. You're allowed to eat a candy bar if a little kid sells it to you. You can't just yeah. go to the gas station and buy a candy bar. That's really what it is. Yeah. Well, it also, it doesn't count on your MyFitnessPal. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, September 20th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To learn more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. 
For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Thank you.